there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people. And today my guest is an author. His name is Mark S. King. His book is My Fabulous Disease, Chronicles of a Gay Survivor. It's a collection of essays that he wrote, a lot of them for different publications and some on his blog, My Fabulous Disease. I first came across Mark's work, probably from that blog or something I read in Frontiers. Anyway, it led me to buy his previous book, A Place Like This, which was a memoir. And I just remember vividly reading it on this train trip and just loving his writing. It's smart, it's full of ideas, it's funny, and it's a pleasure to read. So when I saw that he had a new book out, I reached out to him, we made it happen. Actually, it was so juicy, and I talked to him for so long that we divided it into two parts, so this will be part one. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Sanka for that smooth cup. No, it's not. I don't have any sponsors. It's just me. I do it because I love it. But if you want to support the podcast, if you like it, there are two things you can do. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and donate to my virtual tip jar, uh, help me cover my expenses, or you could become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the DNR banner, and for a monthly fee, you get my show early and you get all these other great shows, and you can learn about that at DNRStudios.com. All right, that's enough plugs. Here now is part one of my interview with Mark S. King. Uh, joining me now from Atlanta, it's Mark S. King, the author of My Fabulous Disease, Chronicles of a Gay Survivor. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Dennis. It's nice to be here. Uh, I've been following your work for a while. I remember reading your memoir. Um, it's A Place Like This. Is that right? Uh, That's right. A number of years ago, I have a vivid memory of remem- reading it on a train and being like, I'm so into this. I I really like the way you write. I, your stuff lands. It's smart. Uh, it's funny, but it, and it's honest. It's just pleasurable to read. So first of all, there's that. Well, there's that, and that is very gratifying to hear. So thank you. Thank you for saying that, and thank you for reading my first book. I appreciate that. No, I, I was, was a nobody back then, you know. Uh, it, it actually says that on the cover. No, um, I was so into <laughs> it. I was so into it. Also, I live in L.A., so a lot of the L.A. stuff, you living here, working here, pursuing uh, entertainment – you know, getting into becoming a, 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 a phone sex entrepreneur and crushing it. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I really uh, enjoyed that odyssey. So how would you describe your new book? Um, I would describe it as my greatest hits. You yeah. know, I am an essayist, a storyteller. Really, my format that I'm used to is writing short essay, first person pieces about life and all of that. And so this book is a collection of writing in real time for four decades. And, and you've written for the, uh, outlets like Pause, Frontiers, your own blog, different places uh, that pop up. And it's interesting, at the end of each chapter, you sometimes give a little update about things related to that, that thing. Like, this was a huge brouhaha at the time, but now this. Um, right. It's interesting to read them in time. Because you write about when Charlie Sheen came out as HIV positive. Barely forgot about it. Forgot about it. If you had asked me about Charlie Sheen, I would. I don't know if I would remember that. Like, but well, that you was might, a big you might deal. remember winning. Yeah. Oh, for know, sure. That whole period of time. The hookers. The blood. The blood. Right. The tiger blood, or whatever it was. Yeah, it was wild. So it was. It was an interesting uh, journey to go back on in your column writing. What were or the one or, or multiple ones that got the most comments? That got the most people riled up? Where you really were like, oh, I touched a nerve here. 
Oh, gee. Uh, uh, your mother liked it bareback. Yeah. Uh, Which is A, true. Was, you cannot argue with that. that that's is a true right. statement. And it's one of those things where sometimes, I have to admit, sometimes I come up with the title yeah. before the piece. <laughs> and that was one of those times. I was good. on a subway platform in yeah. Washington, D.C., and I thought, your mother liked it bareback. Oh, my God. I have to write that piece. But what is it, what's it about? Right. And and actually, PrEP had just entered the scene, the once-a-day pill to prevent JV infection, and, and yet there were still stories about men who were barebacking, which would make, of course, sound psychotic or something. You know, it sounds like some terrible activity, which, in fact, if straight people do it, we call it sex. And uh, and so that became the premise for that piece, and, and it was um, – it got a volcanic response, I suppose. Um, I think I was labeled, here's my favorite, um, a vile merchant of death <laughs> for simply acknowledging the obvious, which is that gay men like everybody else were having sex without a barrier and, uh, and had been, by the way, since the beginning of time, uh, but certainly throughout the AIDS epidemic and, uh, uh, yeah, it was, that was a very strong one. The, the other one that got a very strong response, perhaps more so than usual was, um, stop bludgeoning young gay men with our AIDS tragedy. Yeah. I wrote that actually down on my notes. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. But you know, because I do think I, I do resonate with these ideas because I do think given what our generation gone through, there's a, there's a lot of trauma to unpack there, but young people are young people. And like, I don't know, it, it's kind of like, I kind of look at them and like, go for it. Like, like live your lives, like have joy, do this. Like I'm yay for you. I don't have that thing. Yes. Like even when, when people are like, well, I take prep and I have unprotected sex and people are like, but there's all these other STDs. Yes. But they're very like, yeah. they can't, they're, even if they said there were nothing in the world there's nothing, there's no risk at all. I still think people would be, but yeah, but like, there's this tendency to be like, it can't just be fun and good. You know, and we <laughs> were raised this way in, or at least I, I wasn't, but yeah. I'm 63. We were, uh, most of us were raised in this environment of fear and shame and judgment. And so about our sex and, and since we come out, uh, ashamed, you know, a shame is baseline, right? Yeah. So it's very easy to do that and point fingers and, and stigmatize other people. I always say it's, it's, uh, such an easy way to feel better about ourselves. Yeah. And so such a popular human activity. Yeah. It never goes out of style, but like, right. I relate to that because I grew up Mormon and even when I came out and it was at the height of AIDS, there was still, I was very moralistic about promiscuity. I was a little judgy. I, I, yeah. remember, I remember saying this to a friend of mine and I cringe at the thought of it. If you want sex to mean something, you have to treat it like it does. I'm like, oh, please. Like, I'm just not that guy at all anymore. But it took me forever right. to even get there in my head, let alone have those kind of experiences. So I You know, we have that in common. I was a Mormon for a minute. For when? I, it didn't make I the book. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. Oh, no, it's in the book. It's oh. in the beginning of oh. uh, a place like this. Oh, in the mention. other book. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. in the first book. Yeah. Um, and uh, I uh, was at college, living with my boyfriend, and I was away from home and lonesome. And these two young men came to the door, and they were very nice. They were very nice. Yeah. And I and and we chatted for a while, and um, I went to their church which was a Mormon church, yeah. you know, and I really liked 
the sense of family. You yeah. know, I was away from home. And so just the sense of family of it all was really nice. And then I met this guy, Colin, who was really hot and seduced me. And, um, I actually, when I, when I joined SAG AFTRA, I, my SAG name was Colin King. <laughs> I love that. You know? So you named your SAG persona after your Mormon seducer. That's incredible. That's right. That's wow. right. Wow. You know, there's that whole Mormon genre of porn with the garments and the whole thing. It's very popular. Yes. I might've run across that. <laughs> so did you, you didn't get baptized though. You just went to the church and kind of, Oh no, I got baptized. Wow, the whole thing. Uh, oh, I got baptized. And I remember, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the, the head of the church is called the, um, uh, the head of your local church the is bishop. called something. Yeah. The, the, bishop. the bishop. Thank yeah. you. The bishop of our local church takes me into his office before my baptism. And he says, uh, you know, among other things, he says, so, you know, I know masturbation is a problem, uh, for young men your age. And so, you know, do you have a problem with that? Which I thought was an odd question. And, uh, before getting naked and being dumped into a thing of water. And I said, Oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't have time for that. <laughs> Which I didn't. I was living with my homosexual lover. I, I, I really had no time to masturbate. We were, um, boinking each other's brains out all the time. So yes. So what no, did your I, no, lover sir, think no of you? What did your lover think of you converting to Mormonism? Um, well, you know, was it like your bowling league? Go have fun. Like, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. You know, he was, you know, you know, whatever, you know, well, and, and really I, I, I probably wouldn't have stuck around as long as I did, but they were putting on a musical. Of course, the roadshow. They often call it the roadshow, but maybe it was something else there. What was it? Yes, it was called Saturday's Warrior. Yeah, Saturday's it was a Warrior. Musical. It's a classic Mormon Oh, you musical. remember that? Yes. That I was good. the lead. Oh, my God. I was the you lead. You were the lead in Saturday's Warrior. What were the big songs? I was. Uh, um, um, lift me up. Or who am I? Where am I going? Yeah. Here I sit, all alone, not knowing why, because I was the troubled son. Yeah. And I, I lead my poor mother into a, uh, a, a, uh, miscarriage. And so my little, my little sister up in the spirit world can't be born because I have caused such a, 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 a such trouble in the family. And so I have this big, big, big number at the end of act one where I don't know who I am and what yeah. I'm doing. And it was just so tempting. I couldn't to help myself i had to be in the musical so i stuck around the church yeah um and uh every mormon this was in new orleans when i was in college so every mormon from the tri-state area came to the civic center yeah sold out performances for two, for you know who knows how many performances it was great a full choir and an yeah. orchestra saturday's warrior is like the mormon wicked it is no joke like it is oh, rock yeah. and roll it is theater kid heaven yeah, and we used to sing songs from it, you know, in different uh, incarnations. I never did the actual show, so I'm a little envious. But you, you yes. did that. Um, I love that Jimmy. you talked oh, to Jimmy. Oh, about- Jimmy. My name is Jimmy. I was Jimmy, the troubled son. Yeah, it's a good part. It's a solid role. Um, <laughs> it was great. I love that they talked to you about masturbation because I remember as a Mormon kid feeling that was the only thing I did wrong. It was my only thing. It was the only ex, and I was going to stop. I was going to stop. I was going to stop, and I never did. And I remember there was one pamphlet where it said like self-abuse and it was like one line because I'm searching for like anything on this, right? But I can't have any conversations. And there was one line in a pamphlet pamphlet called – and they called it self-abuse and that was it. Like they just didn't want to deal um, and that's kind of – Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was – this this bishop was very explicit. 
yeah, you know, that's with me about about what I, I might have a problem with this. I don't know why he what, what, what he what he saw in me that I thought yeah. he thought that I was just like you know obsessively jacking off all the time. Other than the fact that I was eighteen, yeah. <laughs> so maybe that. Yeah, maybe it's just something he he tells all the young guys. You were very. Yeah. Uh, you talk about coming out as like a gay pride parade as a senior in high school, like very proud and out. And I was that's amazing to me at that in that time. But yeah, what, you know, what was it? What it's that funny like? because I reflect on it now and I wonder if I was uh, protesting too much, shall we say. I was in Bossier City, Louisiana, which right. is northern Louisiana, not the fun part of the state. And um, I I just figured, uh, you know, I was doing community theater very young, so I was exposed to other gay men. And I figured, you know, if there's nothing wrong with this, then why can't I tell anybody? I, I don't know. I, it's strange that I just had this sense of self and uh, early, yeah. you know, and uh, and so by my senior year, I was in 1977. I was wearing platform shoes and puka shells and jumpsuits and was outrageously gay. But it is I must admit that I had a brother. I have several a big family. I'm the youngest, but I had a brother who was in the same grade as me because I skipped a grade and he was the jock. He was the high school quarterback. He was yeah. the big man on campus. And as he constantly points out, I am the, he is the reason I'm still alive. You're right about you know, that. He's the reason I'm walking and talking because nobody messed with me. And I thought it was because I was so outrageous. They had, they didn't know what to do with me. Oh, they knew what to do with me. They would beat the crap out of me if they could have, but David, my brother, kept that from happening. And you found out about this later in a conversation you write about in the book where he was like, Dude, yes. I was like, I threatened them if they did anything to you. And you're like, oh, yes. that's what happened. Um, jumpsuits. I, I'm having a jumpsuit moment myself. Uh, denim. Gabardine. What were um, they? Gabardine. Yeah. Did you Gabardine. wear Angel's Flight disco pants? They were my fucking I favorite. Did. I, I they, did. I did. Angel Flight. They don't them. have any pockets no. because they're so tight yeah. against your little your little seventeen year old ass. Yeah. Yes. They look so yes. good to this day. If I see a movie in that period of time, and there's, and I'm like, I have a rush because I think I was a little younger than that, so I would see the older guys in them, and it would just drive me crazy. And our oh, yeah. choir. For our swing thing, jazz choir, we were going to get them, but our director didn't like them because they showed the plumbing. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's they my memory. Certainly did. They certainly did. That was the, half the fun. That was the whole point. I mean, to this day, yes. we could do 45 minutes on that. Um, yes. But yeah, you were, you were, you were loud and proud. And then for Mormonism, another one of my institutions, you were on The Price is Right and you start your book out with the story of going on there and, and, and the clip is actually on YouTube and you can look at, who you were at that time. Yes. What you yes. looked like, how you were. Um, you played Lucky Seven, which is one of the hardest pricing games on that show, I think. Is it really? You talk like you're an authority. I am. You really want 10 chances. 10 chances is just give me the car. It's a done deal. Um, Lucky Seven is the one where they give you like $7, uh, seven single dollars, and you guess numbers, and you have to give a dollar back for every time you're wrong. But you won, right? I did. Yeah, I did when I had no idea what I was doing. I had I, I had no grasp of the game. Not, right. Certainly not like you do. I just stood there looking adorable and looking at my boyfriend in the audience who was telling me everything to say or do every number to select. I just and if you look at the at the video, Mark S. King wins a car on the prices right. Nineteen eighty. I think it is nineteen eighty one on YouTube. 
well, first of all, God was I adorable. God was yeah. I cute with my red hair and my little smile. And and, and your boyfriend um, had that hot stash. Like he did. He had stash. this hot. He was twenty six and yeah. I was eighteen. You do the math. I mean, right. I was. Um, a happy boy and, um, a happy little bottom. And at the time, at the time, you know, and then I grew into my top hood, you know, um, but that might be the title of this podcast. I grew into my top hood. I love the word top hood. Anyway. I, I like that. And we were wearing matching outfits. Yeah. We both had 501 jeans and a red t-shirt that had the logo for numbers disco in Houston, which was the gay disco. And we put the price tag name tag thing over the disc over the logo yeah um but yeah we're, we were in that early wearing matching outfits yeah. stage you know? I, had, I had a podcast guest recently from who wrote a book about 1981 and he was telling me that if you unbutton certain buttons of your 501s like the lowest button that was sending a, me- a gay message like that you were hot to trot is it do you remember well that? no that's absolutely true was it the very bottom one or like the second of the bottom yeah, one there was a whatever code. gave you the most lift yeah you know <laughs> um, uh, the most bulge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's true. That's very true. That's the thing. I love Charlie that. always had, uh, Charlie, I'm sure of it had that button open when I met him, <laughs> you know, and a few more within minutes. But now, yes. This is not on the clip, nor do you write it in the book, but you must have spun the big wheel. Right on the prices. Oh right? yes, it's my uh, dream. In the full video, the 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 video on YouTube is slightly edited. Yeah. Um, in the full video, which I have stashed in a box somewhere. Um, I do spin the wheel. Thank you for asking. Well, because like, how heavy um, is it? Because Bob Parker it's does very not, heavy. He gets really pissed if you don't get it all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> it's very heavy and um and you really have to I mean I was, you know, I mean I mean I was no weakling, but you really have to reach up high and pull. Yeah. And I don't know how more people don't get bonked in the head by that thing, you know, while they're doing it. But the first spin goes around and around and around and then here comes one dollar here comes one dollar here comes one dollar it comes right after the one dollar and the little thing is bending and it stops oh so you and so i almost got like the ten thousand thing so it was five cents and then i spinned again and it was like another five cents or something so i didn't get into the showcase but i'd already won a car i mean you know i'm i was good you were good good. you were in in the and the footage is amazing you write about when protease inhibitors come along and that it yes. sort of really changed your life, your direction, your relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that time? Because I remember it through friends of mine who are HIV positive. And my memory is that it was a couple and one was doing better on them than the other. And then it, then it all, you know, it, it worked out. They both, you know, it, it worked out both for them. But I remember that moment of like, oh, this is changing. What do you remember about it? Oh, yes. It was the line of demarcation between before and after, yeah, you know, it was when after the rug being pulled out from under us so many times in those preceding 12 years um, of, of, of absolutely nothing. Um, no, no medications that were really effective, uh, particularly they kind of delayed the inevitable, but they didn't really work in long term. And then, you know, multi-drug therapy began with the protease inhibitors, throwing in a few other things. And, um, you know, they called it the Lazarus effect because guys were getting up off their deathbeds and, 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 uh, and living life again. And it was, it was weird. I mean, obvious. Okay. Here's the thing. You live life in two year increments. 
Okay. Waiting to die, waiting for the spot and the cough or whatever it is, right. whatever sounds the alarm that the countdown has begun. And that's how I lived since testing positive in 1985. As soon as the test came out, I took it and I was positive. And so I was probably positive since the time I moved to Los Angeles in 1981 because I was very, you know, uh, very much on the scene having a lot of sex at any rate. <clears throat> so yes, living life in two year increments, kind of mentally preparing to die at any point and trying to come to terms with your own mortality at the age of 24, 25, 26, right. 27. And, um, and then this happens and, you know, I, like so many other people had, you know, run up the credit cards and taken the trip around the world and told the boss to go to hell and yeah. mentally prepared myself to die. And now I'm going to live. Yeah. I mean, sh shit, you know, and, and I haven't worked in years and I'm broke and I, I felt guilty because I didn't feel grateful. So it was a fucked up emotional whiplash sort of thing that a lot of us went through. Do I feel grateful today? Of course I do. But it took, it took a recalibration of what the life of my, the rest of my life might mean and what would it mean, you know? And so, you know, I guess fortunately for me, I had been writing throughout that time and writing as someone who had, you know, the clock ticking always. And, and, and so be able to write through that period and write out my kind of, uh, my, that the whole recalibration of it all as we entered this new era. And, and, and then this really weird thing happened, which was we, those of us living with HIV were kind of viewed prior to that as tragic victims, you know, and, uh, and, and there was a credible amount of empathy, although kind of a weird empathy, you know, because you're going to die. And um, and then when protease happened, we all got healthy again. And we, we went back to the gym. We got on our steroids. We started dancing on boxes and the circuit parties. But w my point is we reentered the scene. Yeah. We reentered the scene. And yet we were still socially marked and degraded and 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 that's when i believe social stigma against those of us living with hiv really was inflamed because how do you stigmatize somebody when you don't know who they are which one of you is the hiv positive one we got to find out you know and uh, uh it's kind of it's weird it's like as 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 medic as medications improved as the social uh, as the medical Landscape improved, social stigma grew. Interesting. Grew. That's really And then it was about that time that the internet comes out and suddenly you are searching for people who are clean and, 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 uh, you know, that social stigma was, was just enraged. And I think it was about the fact that how dare we want to now dance beside you and fuck you, you know, when we are so dangerous. And by the way, untrustworthy. Wow. Because people living with HIV are viewed as inherently untrustworthy. You've done something wrong. You have bad judgment. You're promiscuous. You're all of these things. And so it, it, as great as the pro, you know, the, the advent of new medications in the late nineties was, 
it also heralded this time of great social stigma that um, reverberates today. Right. And during that period, you talk about uh, struggling with addiction and you know, getting being part of that whole scene. And like, how do you relate that part of your journey with with the HIV journey? Like how, how, what's the connection if there is one? You know, that's funny. What is the connection? You know, it's funny. I, I, you know, I'm in a program of recovery and I, I take, I take responsibility for my own actions and all of that. But I, I often think of, um, the Phyllis Diller quote. Phyllis Diller was on Johnny Carson a thousand years ago and she comes out looking a fright. You know, she's got the wig and the, the house dress and she looks terrible. Right. And she looks at the audience and she says, you know, there's no excuse for looking like this. There are reasons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And there's no excuse for my having become a drug addict. Right. But there are reasons. Yeah, I like you know, that. And, and, and among those reasons were the fact that I felt entitled to the party, yeah. to all of those years that were stolen from me. And I think that that had a lot to do with the emergence of the circuit party scene right. that happened after the advent of the new medications. All of these circuit parties that were supposedly, you know, fundraisers for AIDS organizations, right. but in fact just became these, uh, you know, bacchanalias, you know, and, uh, and I don't say that with any judgment. I mean, we all felt entitled to the party, right? Yeah. Um, but with that party came dance floor drugs and all that. I'm like, gimme, 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 gimme. Yeah. I, I got making up to do, you know, uh, unfortunately for me that eventually, you know, I always say I followed, <laughs> I followed the trajectory of gay men's, uh, substance use. You know, I, I drank in the seventies. I did Coke in the eighties. It was LA. It right. was the eighties. Yeah. I did dance floor drugs in the nineties, you know, especially when that circuit party scene began. And then in the two thousands, I was introduced to crystal meth and that was it. That was it. No more maintaining, you know, appearances. I, I, I became, uh, within a few years, a daily user. I was shooting up every day. It was bad. Wow. It was bad. I mean, that is the question, right? Why? All of those friends I said goodbye to, all of those friends that I promised I would live on their behalf, all of those promises made so that I could stick needles in my arm. I mean, unpack that, you know, um, is that just simply survivor's guilt? You know, why, you know, and just like I don't ask anymore, you know, why did I survive? I mean, I stopped asking that question a long time ago. There is no answer for it. And maybe there is no answer, a, a, a good one, a, 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 a a, uh, a specific one for why the addiction happened to me, but there are reasons. Yeah. I love that. Speaking of Phyllis Diller, this is a sidebar. I am sitting under a painting done by Phyllis Diller, right? As we speak. It's no, very kidding. cute. Yeah. I can tilt the screen so you can see it. The people at home can't. Um, do you see that long horizontal? Up there? Yeah. That looks kind of yes. like a cartoon. Okay. So my friend, Jack Kenny, um, was friends with her and invited me. She used to do these like sales in her house where you could buy stuff and paintings and stuff. And then she would sign them. Really? And, yeah. And so he invited me and me and my then boyfriend went and we both got pictures by paintings by Phyllis Diller. And I remember then you sign up to get, get the autograph and she's pretty old and you know, um, you kind of mind to make it quick and not belabor it. And, um, I remember I'm like, I'm going to be respectful and I'm going to be like, what do you think you were thinking about when you painted this painting? You know, like trying to, I'm treating her like a serious artist. She goes, 
I was drunk. Like, I don't <laughs> it, signed it and on the way. But yeah, that was cool. And it's funny you mentioned that. Um, but when you talk about this time, I, I was always, I never got into the circuit scene. And I was always a little, I always looked down my nose at it. And you talk about when COVID happened and there was that big brouhaha, the gays on Fire Island, or the party boat in Puerto Vallarta that capsized and everyone loved it. There's all of these judgments around it. But I think if they weren't hot people, there wouldn't be the outcry. It's hot guys. We're jealous of hot guys having fun. You know, we're I was, not hot. Or you know, I was going to say, I was going to say, as soon as you said looking down the nose of it, I immediately I thought to myself, oh, I guess he wasn't hot. I wasn't. You know? It's the truth. And that's the way I felt about it. Also, the music. I can't. I want a melody. Um, but anyway. No, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And, and I was fortunate in that I was pretty. Yeah. And then when you added the steroids and the gym membership and the trainer, I was I was set to go. You had, I was you had the ultimate currency because I think it's always been true. Hotness is the ultimate currency in the gay world. It's nice to have money, but hotness, I think, trumps it. Well, you know, um, it, it certainly depends on where you're, you know, what, what pond you're swimming in. Yeah. But certainly, yes, uh, if you're on a dance floor and you're shirtless uh, and, and you do what I did, which always is dancing on a box. Yeah. Because you want you you want the lights on you. You're you on know. Saturday's Warrior, for Christ's sakes. You deserve a spotlight. That's right. That's right. And um, I, I, I was I was uh, just obsessive about it and got and was a big boy, you know, got to be big and all of those things. And he, you notice I mentioned that, you know, yeah. I want you to know that. It's I important. want you to know. Right. No, that I had 19. Yeah. 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 So you call it. And the, so, the so you can see that I'm still I'm still seduced by it. You know, I, I, any reason not to have my shirt on so I could just have my jeans and strut around, you yeah. know, oh God, it was all about, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about this without sounding like a complete dick. Um, and which I was, um, and, but I have friends who were not in that scene. Yeah. I have friends for whom the gene pool had not been as kind. Yeah. You know, and uh, and they spent their time developing relationships and family and uh, culture and all of these things, as well as, you know, elevated personality traits like empathy and <laughs> things that were of no use to me whatsoever, no. you know, because I was too busy, you know, uh, shaking my ass. And I, I I have had to. And a lot of it has been my process of recovery and then just maturity. But I've had a lot of catching up to do. I've had a lot of catching up to do. And, and it's funny if you when you read a place like this, the first book, you see that that self-absorbed um, uh, guy for whom all relationships were transactional. I mean, I think that I was self-aware enough when I wrote that book to let you see that. Yeah, I felt and, that as I was reading it for sure. Good, good. Um, and, and so now in this collection of essays, uh, in the new book, fortunately you get to see, <laughs> I would like to think that you get to see what became of him and, uh, of that character from the first book and the fact that I am capable of, of, of empathy and compassion and, um, uh, just all the stuff that maybe it would have been nice if I had, uh, uh, had those capacities 30 years ago, yeah, even 20, and I didn't. Yeah. Your therapist, you write about your therapist saying to you at one point, you have no second act. 
you make a good impression, but then that's it. And I was like, that's a that's harsh, right. That's a harsh therapist. First of all, wasn't that harsh? Well, was that's like, why shit. I keep mentioning it. Yes, I thought I thought it was a little harsh too. You know, um, and it's I, funny. I supposed to be like, oh, interesting. And how does that make you feel? And he was like, look, yeah. you're shallow. Oh, no. You're shallow. Doing he no. was done with me. He was he was ready to tell to let go with some truth bombs. Uh, it's funny because I I I and and I was inactive addiction, I think, when he said that, that a therapist said that to me. And then many years later, I went to, a, you know, I've seen therapists off and on episodically. And, and uh, I don't know, it was 10 years ago that I saw a therapist about a particular issue that I, I wanted to work on. And we kind of worked through it. And I remember his uh, kind of the, the session in which he let me go <laughs> and him saying, you know, Mark, I really think our work here is done as much as I would love to continue discussing your blog. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, okay, I guess we're done. I, I guess we're done. That's so funny. Um, back in when blogging first started, I would, I remember this one friend of mine being at a party and being like, well, how are you doing? And he's saying, well, this thing. And I was like, oh, really? And he goes, well, you obviously haven't been reading my blog. Like we were all, <laughs> we were all indicted. So he became known as, well, you obviously haven't been reading my blog guy. Cause we, I guess we were all supposed to be up to date. Um, yeah. That's the way people are sometimes with social media too. You're like, well, you didn't No, I, I might've missed that. Um, but you, well, you know, I, I have 5,000 people on Facebook. How am I supposed to keep, you know, and most of them, of course, I don't know, yeah. you know, um, it's funny, the blogging thing, you know, I was a columnist. That's how I started. I had a column in yeah. the yeah. Windy City Times and Frontiers and what, what have you. I mean, I, that that's how I wrote. And then suddenly I'm called a blogger and uh, and or a journalist which makes me kind of laugh but but okay i'm a journalist call all i know is i'd like to tell the story in about 800 words so call me whatever you want yeah well that i my first i wrote a novel uh, two novels actually but the first one was based on columns and i remember that feeling of like it's got to be 100 words it's got so when i was yeah. going through like there's this so as i was reading your book i'm like oh this is going to end the next page you know, this, yes. like there's an economy to it that I appreciate and that I relate to. It reminded me of my, um, that, that those times in my life. Um, yeah. So it's wild. Well, and if that, if that essay you're reading doesn't speak to you, turn the page. Yeah. There's another one. What is, there's another one. What did the regularity of that kind of writing mean to you? Was it pleasurable to do it? Or were there times where you're like, Oh God, I got to write a column. Like how did well, that no, feel? because nobody was breathing down my neck. You know, when I started my fabulous disease, the blog, the website, right. myfabulousdisease.com, I, I did it for myself. It was for my therapy. It was for, but I was never one of those writers or bloggers that was like, well, this morning I had, I had Wheaties and then I got some, you know, I was not that sort of writer. I, I always wanted to produce a piece that was freestanding, that was well thought out and had a beginning, a middle and end. And that could be reproduced elsewhere, you know, that, that a magazine could take it if they wanted, or it would appear somewhere else. And I would just share it. I'm like, you know, I had editors all the time saying, Oh, can we use that? I'm like, please, no, you don't have to pay me. Just take, I mean, I was fortunate in that way. 
that I could build my brand, you know, as it were, um, by sharing those, those things. And, um, and no, I, I, you know, I will go weeks sometimes without writing, uh, something. I, I try to wait until there's something happening that I feel compelled to say something about. And that's when I'll write it. And I, I want my readers to feel as if, Oh, Mark posted something. It's worth reading. It's not just, you know, you know, what he did at the gym today, you know, sort of thing. Right. Um, you talked about the time you got fired by your therapist and that, that wild time. And, and um, what got you out of that selfish time into the new phase? What snapped you out of that sort of more shallow, I guess? Uh, well, you know, again, I have to return to um, stopping drugs yeah. Um, and all of the selfishness and self-centeredness that comes with it, because you're spending all of your time trying to cover up this lie, you know, and the lies upon lies that come with it, you know. And so you're spending all of your time in like self-preservation mode, yeah. which is so self-centered, you know. And it really wasn't until I could release myself of that and look around and say, who am I, you know, who am I without this, you know, um, uh, you know, they say, if you want to find out why you drink, stop drinking, you know, um, <laughs> and, and, and who is the authentic person? Because it affected every, I mean, my sex life was selfish and, uh, compulsive. And, um, I was a terrible sex partner just because I, 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 I wanted what I wanted and what you want doesn't really matter too much. And, um, all of that I, you know, when you say, how did you stop it? I stopped doing drugs and started, started a process in which I um, tried to unearth who Mark is and Mark at his Mark, the better version, you know, the version I might have been had those, had the drug addiction not happened, you know, and it's a constant kind of excavation process. And, um, uh, lucky for me, um, um, I am a nice guy. As it, as it turns out, as it turns as out, as it turns out, yeah, you know. <clears throat> so speaking of being a good man, you write this early in the book about the time when AIDS was was raging. My most courageous self, the best man that I'll ever be, lived more than two decades ago during the first years of the horrible plague. Do you feel like that was that that not just you, but everyone was called to be the, their best selves in a way? And there's something poignant about that, or like I just that that line struck me. So, you know, it still strikes me and, um, I, I kind of want to correct it yeah. a little bit, Asterisk. you know, I kind of want to say, well, hold, hold the phone here. <laughs> that was the best, that, that was the best me because I was called up. Yeah. I was called up, you know, and, and me and a thousand other people stepped up and, and that guy still lives in me. That guy is still here. Yeah. Um, I haven't been, you know, my number hasn't been called again to do something else, but I, 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 I still contribute. You know, I still, I still, I, I am informed by that. I, I, I act in a way that, that is informed by all of that stuff. And, um, and you know, what it comes down to is if I, you know, if I'm not a better guy, if I don't have more empathy for other people, regardless of what they've gone through, what the hell was it all for? Yeah. Why, why, why did I go through that? If not to have more empathy for other people rather than rattling around going in my day, we walked five miles for our AZT, you know, everybody has their shit. Yeah. 
and there's people listening right now who have been through worse than me. Yeah. And I know that for sure. I hope and, so because I need the listeners. Like when you well, say, yeah, well, yeah. every time when you say there's people listening, I'm like, I hope so. Like, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, re- regardless, both of them, uh, they, have, yes. they, have, they have been through They've worse. Been through stuff. Um, some of right. the things that you write about that time really jumped out at me and I just want to share them. Oh, that there were very few singular deaths. Everybody was doing it. Like you didn't get to grieve yeah. individual people <clears throat> because it was sort of like, well, on to the next. Like it was almost like a trend. Um, yes. Yeah. And I would be envious of people. I, I, I begin that particular piece by talking about I was overhearing this conversation. Um, I was on a bus or something going from New York to who knows where. And and I hear this woman, this young woman saying, oh, I know someone who died. Uh, it was so and so. He was a friend of my brother's. And, and she starts to tell the story, you know, uh, the, the motorcycle accident or whatever the hell it was. And 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 then the funeral and, and how everyone behaved at the funeral. And 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 I just thought, first of all, I thought just one. <laughs> she knows just one person who died, right. you know, and and. and and then I thought that this guy, whoever he was, he had his own death. He got it all to himself. And, and, and people will tell the story and we'll talk about him and talk about all of these circumstances around it. And yeah, right. We didn't get that. They were coming so fast and furious that we didn't, we didn't, there was no time for any singular yeah. death. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's just the way it was. Here's another line that you wrote that isn't. I think is a good example of how I just think you're writing Lance, why I like it so much. AIDS was as if everyone who died of COVID lived in your town. Like, oh, that land, like, yeah, that's, 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 that's what it was. Yes, that um, precise. I, I want to talk to you about your Rock Hudson story. Uh, you, you write about playing Trivial Pursuit with him and having this sort of furtive <coughs> hookup with him. I'm curious about the actual Trivial Pursuit game. Do you remember anything about it? Was he good? Yes. At the, he was good at entertainment. He was like, oh, that would be my friend Doris Day. Like, how did that go? Right. Yes, there was a Doris Day question. No, yes. You made my There week. was a question. I don't know if she was part of the clue or if she was the answer or whatever. But yes, there was. And I thought, God, you know, to be him and have every situation in life based on just like cultural stuff about which he is central, yeah. you know, it's so weird. Um, uh, I remember him, uh, uh, he had, you know, he had never played the game. And so we played the game and he drank all my scotch of course and, um, yes. And, and that was after like umpteenth drinks at the, at the, at the club, uh, you know, the New the York company before. where I once did a cabaret show. I did not sing anything from Saturday's warrior, wasn't the right crowd, but I remember that space. <laughs> That's where you met Rock Hudson. I, I guess, and years later, I would be a bartender there for a strip show. Um, but at any rate, yes, that's where I met him. And I also remember he had many stories. He would tell. He would. He loved to tell stories. He loved being Rock Hudson yeah. for the uninitiated. Yeah. You know, for, for the, for the, for the guy like me who was at, you know, at his feet listening intently, you know, he loved telling those, he was clear and, uh, he hated Julie Andrews. I love that part. Um, I wrote that down. You know, he said, uh, you need Julie Andrews like you need a knife in your back. Um, I suppose that has to do with this, the movie he did with her, um, directed by Blake Edwards. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
And I just listened. And then, and then funny enough, years later, I'm working in an AIDS agency and Julie Andrews is appearing. She is, she has done a movie with Anne Margaret. They're both there. I am the director of media for this organization and I'm shuttling them around, you know, to the, to the media room and to this and to that. And God, I wanted to say to her so bad, did you know that Rock Hudson thought that you were a knife in his back? I, I wanted so bad, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, right before he fucked me, he told me I, I wanted to tell her so bad and I yeah. didn't. You didn't. You do. You held your tongue. But I can't imagine you played the Trivial Pursuit where you had to land on the right square to get the wedge. I think that would have taken days and you had to get to the sex. I imagine uh, you I must was, have done a truncated get, – you get a wedge <laughs> no matter what. Well, I, you know, I, know I it's don't all remember a blur it. at this point. I, yeah, it's kind of a blur. <laughs> I don't know if we uh, took shortcuts as it were. I certainly wanted to. Yeah. Um, and uh, – but yeah, we, 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 we got to the sex in due right. time. I remember when Rock Hudson was diagnosed with HIV or AIDS and it was on all the magazines. I remember being in the grocery store in Arizona and being like, oh, my God, I can't imagine what it would have felt like to have slept with him and watched that moment in the culture. Like, what was that like? He was the first person I knew who I had had sex with. That you knew for sure. Who who, who got, yes, who got sex, uh, who who got uh, sick. Um and so, uh, because he died in 19, late 1985, he was early on. And so, uh, yes, it was, you know, you, you know, you would, you would hear about, well, did you know so-and-so is sick, you know, and you're like, oh, shit, I, I, you know, I did him years ago, but he was the first. And so, yes, I was watching the first on the news every night. Every single night. Here's Rock Hudson. Here is he getting experimental treatment. Oh, here's a helicopter shot of him in Paris getting taken out of a helicopter on a gurney. You know, I and and I was I was tortured by it, tortured by it because you hadn't been Uh, tested yet. Right. Um, I, by the time he died, I knew I was positive. Oh yeah. Because I, I tested in March of 85. I believe that he died later that year. I'd have to look it up. So I could have my chronology wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I knew that I was positive when he died. Now I have friends that say, are you suggesting that Rock Hudson gave you? I'm like, no, I am not. I am not suggesting that there were, there were, um, there were many candidates in terms of, and, 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 and it never occurred to me, it never occurred to me, first of all, it never occurred to any of us <clears throat> to point a finger at who might have yeah. transmitted HIV to us. It was not, it was, it was absurd to even think about such a thing, which is why, of course, HIV criminalization today is such an insane, in other words, we didn't, we, we called the doctor to get treatment. We did not call the cops it wasn't to press charges. It. Yeah, it wasn't a you know, thing, yeah. But, but, but the whodunit, of course, is all based on shame yeah. and embarrassment. You know, how dare you get HIV now? Oh, well, it must be somebody else's fault. Him, him, yeah. he did it, you yeah. know? Wild. Another story in your book that really touched me was about Daniel P. Werner and the L.A. Shanty uh, occasion, the awards, the big event. Yes. Um, yes. I cried reading that. Can you say a little bit about who he was and, and what happened? Daniel Warner um, was the founding director of the Shanti Foundation in Los Angeles. It was the first organization uh, founded in Los Angeles. I got a job there when there was only five people on staff. Daniel Warner was absolutely gorgeous. He was a leather man. He was young. He was Hispanic. He was beautiful. 
And, um, and I wanted to work there because I wanted to, I, I was HIV positive. I, I wanted to stop what I was doing and go get a job and do something until I died, you know, and, um, it was there and he was, uh, an incredibly inspiring man. And then he, he retired because he wanted to go retired young. I mean, he wanted to go back to San Francisco. We thought maybe he might be sick. And, uh, and then, Shanti did this big star studded, um, fundraiser and everybody was there. It was Lily Tomlin and, and, uh, and, um, and Margaret was there and Bette Midler, right? And Bette Midler was the headliner. And, um, I'm working the media room because I'm the director of media at this point, And I am taking people into the gauntlet of cameras, you know, in the, in the room where they're going to stop and talk to each one of the cameras and, and give interviews and whatnot. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, this America is here. Uh, uh, um, uh, she, uh, Leonza Cornette, the newly crowned Miss America who had a, a, a platform of HIV, the first one, right. she was at our event. And, and, uh, and she's with Daniel. I'm like, she's Daniel's here. Oh my God, this is great. And I turn and there she is, Miss America. She's got her crown. She looks gorgeous. And there is Daniel on her arm covered in lesions. This beautiful man covered in lesions. And, and he's got the biggest smile on his face. And he's like, Mark, hi, how are you doing? And, and have you, have you met my date? And I'm like, Oh, Miss Cornette, how nice to meet you. And Daniel's so great to see you. And, and, and I've got this look of shock, I'm sure on my face, you know, and, and he sees it and he just smiles. And, and I say, well, okay, you know, and, and I, I walk into the room and I say, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, Miss America, Leonza Cornette, uh, escorted by Daniel P. Warner, founder of LA Shanti. And they step in. And of course the flashes all start and all of that. And then the flashes kind of stop. And it's like the photographers, they're, they're like peeking out from their cameras. They're, they're looking to make sure right. that they're seeing this right, you know? And I'll, I turn back to them and I will never forget this. She grabs him and pulls him closer. She pulls him up against her. Oh, I'm going to lose it. It was such a beautiful um, gesture of support on her part. And she pulls him closer and they both smile and step further into the room. And then the flashes start again and they start taking pictures, taking pictures, Leonza this way and Mr. Warner, Mr. Warner this way. And they are grinning ear to ear. And it is so triumphant uh, and beautiful. And uh, I thought, oh my God, he's the biggest star in the world. That is the biggest star in the world. What courage it took for both of them to do that, like yeah. to and to in, embrace it that way. Like the both of them, like this is the '80s. She's Miss America. What's more conservative yeah. than Miss America? Um, yeah. And so I, you know, it was. Uh, I mean, to be clear, it was 1992. Yeah. But still, yeah. Uh, no medications yet. Nothing that works. Um, lots of death and dying, and she she just holding tight to his arm and. Just amazing. I went to look at the pictures on your blog 
to see if there were pictures. First of all, because you described him as hot, so I got to see how hot he is. Like, that is such a through line in our culture, (laughs) even though it's the the thing that makes it all go around, really. And then, of course, there's the picture of them together. And uh, yes. and and it's it's striking. It's 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 what a moment! What a moment! And yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you wrote about it. Um, it's interesting how the culture relates to the AIDS crisis and in sort of waves. Like we've had enough of those stories. Oh, maybe we're ready for more. Like maybe we can look at it again at a different time. Mm-hmm. Madonna doing this AIDS tribute in her concert now. I've watched videos and footage online. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I find it so moving. I think it's so meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's been, you know, part of our lives, you know? Right. Right. I'll cut this part out. <laughs> no, you won't. You better not. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Leanne Cordell wouldn't cut it out. <laughs> Anyway, it's inter- it's interesting this the the waves that we go through as we process the whole journey of our community, I think. Well, you know, it's funny because I think that when I wrote the first book it was 2007 and I don't think we were ready to look back at that yet. I I mean, uh is much as I tried as as entertaining as a book as it may be, I don't know that people were ready. It's funny it takes a good 20 years at least I think for for us culturally or socially to be able to look back with any objectivity or to rediscover it again and to see if there are, are, are new lessons to be learned from it, you know? And so, uh, you know, you look at the, there was an avalanche of new AIDS memoirs, Sean's true body counts, Peter Staley, never silent. Um, and, uh, all of these, uh, there was in the last five years or so. And, um, uh, you know, we were ready to look, having the normal heart finally produced, yeah. you know, uh, as a film. Um, you know, we were ready to look back at it and with some objectivity and see what, what there is to mine from it. You know, I'm hoping to ride that wave, by the way, Dan, Dennis, I, I hope that I, my, my new book. <laughs> my, my three that. listeners are going to really do, we're going to do our best, our army. Thank you. The army. Thank no, you. Um, And that was part one of my conversation with Mark S. King. Tune in next week for part two. We get into a lot of other juicy stuff, and uh, I could have talked to him all day. To learn more about him and his book, go to markesking.com. All right, so this happened. I got some really crummy news recently that I've just, it's really gotten me down. There's a place in North Hollywood, not far from where I live, called T-Pop. It's like a coffee shop, but they specialize more in teas. So bobas, all these cool milk teas with flavors. And it's got a nice, like, indoor area for seating. And then it's got this amazing patio in the back. And I remember it opened in 2014. And it was right as I was making some big changes in my own life. I had left this job um, under, you know, there, there was a strike that happened. And I ended up, like, without a job. And I would go there a lot and sort of work on my stuff. And I found out this week that T-Pop is closing on the 18th of November. Uh, I don't know the whole story. I know it has something to do with a landlord, um, which is just so unfortunate. But I love this place so much. I got that news and I just couldn't, oh, I couldn't process it because that was the place we did our early versions of You Don't Know My Life, um, our play test. That's what we developed it. Um, 
you would go there and there would be screenwriters at one table and you would hear somebody talking about music. I, I'd overhear so many first coffee dates. I had a few there myself. Um, I'm sure I did interviews there for the podcast. Like, it was just a magical place. And we would sell, when, when You Don't Know My Life was finished, they have this art um, market every once in a while. And we sell games there. And I just, we did postcards there when we were trying to, you know, affect the election and save the world. Um, just so many memories. And they, they made it through the pandemic. And the other day I saw Arlene there, the owner, who I've known for, you know, since it opened nine years ago. And I, I was trying to express to her how much this place meant to me. And I, you know, it, it, and I tried to, this is what I tried to say to her. And I started crying and I couldn't finish it. I was like, this place believes in your dreams. Like all the people that go there, they hang art on the walls from different artists, local artists, people that go there. And she used to be a dancer, so she gets that. It's not like, you know, Starbucks is nice and, you know, I love a, I love a, you know, vanilla sweet cream cold brew. But this was a place where you could go and plan and dream and they, you felt like there was a community around you. And, um, yeah, I tried to say that to her and it, it didn't quite come out right. And Arlene told me that, um, in the early Google searches, like if you brought up Google Maps for T-Pop, I was in the picture sitting in the window working, um, which I don't know. I find that so poignant. Um, but they are doing one final art mart on um, November 18th, Saturday, from 11 to 4. So I'm going to go sell my You Don't Know My Life games and um, schmooze and just enjoy being there one last time. I'm so devastated about this place. It really represents, I don't know, something so special to me. And it was a special place, but maybe they'll find another home and it'll all work out. I wish everyone involved in T-Pop, Arlene, and everyone that's ever worked there um, so much goodwill because they brought so much goodwill to the community. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to remind you of my two other side businesses. You Don't Know My Life is the box party game we were just talking about. I also host virtual team building events with the game, and you can learn about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com, buy the game on Amazon. I also have a business called LifeCast where I interview people about their lives like a podcast, but it's something you might get for your parents to get their story down in a way that's fun and painless and lovely. So you can learn about that at getalifecast.com. I also want to give a shout out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!